Welcome to episode 15 of Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world from a variety of angles. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and to continue our month of football and the build-up to the Super Bowl, our guest this week is Mike Sando, senior NFL writer for The Athletic. Mike has covered the NFL since 1998 with stops at multiple newspapers, 12 years at ESPN before joining The Athletic last year. Mike is one of the more open-minded and analytically-minded mainstream NFL writers, and for a while I've enjoyed how he combines different perspectives from players, coaches, management, and numbers into his pieces. I think he uses advanced stats and analytics very well, sometimes explaining metrics and their purposes, sometimes using them more implicitly to support thoughts or points in certain directions. So whether you're coming to this podcast from more of a journalism perspective or more of the analytics side, I think you'll be interested in what Mike has to say about his career path how football analytics and teams' use of them has evolved, how he uses data in writing, his advice for aspiring journalists, both from a media and an analytics angle, being on the Pro Football Hall of Fame committee, and his run-in with Hulk Hogan. We'll also talk about last week's divisional playoffs and peek ahead to this weekend's conference title games. Without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with The Athletic's Mike Sando. We are joined now by Mike Sando, senior NFL writer for The Athletic. Mike, welcome to the show. Before we get into your career, how you've seen analytics and football evolve, I want to talk about what we just saw last weekend in the divisional round. Uh, the Ravens were shocked. The Chiefs had a big comeback. Form held in the NFC, not necessarily smoothly. Uh, what stood out to you, maybe from a numbers standpoint, about what you saw in the divisional round? I got the homework assignment. I love that. Appreciate you sending me the email so with a yeah. little bit of a heads up, and because right. uh, I'm a preparer, you know, right. I me too. I really hate to be caught off guard because I want to put the, the thought into it, right? And, and you, right. you hate talking off the top of your head. So first off, that second off, thanks for having me on. So mm-hmm. one of the things I did, I went into True Media. You know, I'm a, a heavy user, and I went right. into your little uh, league section, right? I like the league section, and so for those listening. Basically, I could go stack the last 20 years, basically, and look at every divisional round and just look at different metrics. There's different reports I have. So when I did that, it was kind of interesting. Here's one. There's a couple things I noticed. One is from about 2002 to 2016. Right. So, you know, roughly a 15 year period. Divisional round averaged about 12 turnovers. Okay, between the teams. And the last three years, there's been six, six, six. So you would have to say, I don't know. I don't know why that is. Or is quarterback play better? I don't think the average turnover, mar- you know, rate has fallen in half in the last three years. In right. That's that's probably not true. I didn't even check it. But that's notable. I mean, teams aren't losing the game. And I think when you look at Green Bay, they're a classic team that um, leaves us wanting a little more. Like they're not that mm-hmm. impressive, right? They they sort of do mm-hmm. enough to win. You know, when I look at a team like Green Bay in that context of fewer turnovers, and I don't know if they've had fewer, Aaron Rodgers never turns it over anyway, but I think uh, one of the things that I would observe about them so far in this sort of small sample size with Matt LaFleur is they seem less prone prone to kind of blow the game. You know what I mean? They leave you wanting more. You're like, oh, you got Aaron Mm -hmm. Rodgers, and why why doesn't it look a little more impressive? But they're not screwing up, and maybe they're going to screw it up this week. But so that was one thing. There's just not a lot of uh, – mm-hmm. I know the Ravens had some turnovers, but for the most part, those were down. Another one was the Ravens' failures on fourth down in this game were a little bit emblematic, 
And so if you look in the divisional round, teams were two of 13 converting on fourth down. Okay. Wow. Last year in the divisional round, it was 13 of 15. And the year before, it was 10 of 14. And what's interesting about that is before that, before these last three years, there were far more, far fewer attempts. So you can kind of see this. We, mm-hmm. we feel this. And I think the numbers are, are kind of up. And some will attribute it to the Eagles, the Ravens, whatever. But right. definitely there's more people going for it on fourth down. And I think we would all agree that that's probably good from a process standpoint that those numbers are up. It's mm-hmm. just that in this divisional round, no one was making it. Two of 13 right. is a very low rate. And when you go back to that Raven game, those were big plays in the game, right? If they hit those, maybe the game goes on a different path, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, those were two things. Yeah, two things that stood out. And I think it's round. true, especially about the Packers. You know, we just don't expect the kind of high-flying offense from the, uh, whatever, Jordy Nelson, Randall Cobb days of 10 years ago. And and they're not like that now. So I'm now so we're looking glad ahead. You said it in, I'm so glad you said uh-huh. it in the context of those guys, though, because I don't buy that Rodgers is totally gone in the tank. I, I feel like... Mm. This is systemic and weaponry related, which is a conversation for another day, but you, yeah. you framed that well. So now we're looking ahead to title games uh, coming up this weekend. Titans, Chiefs, Packers, Niners. Uh, in your uh, pick six column, you talked about how the Packers did against good defenses this season. What did you learn from diving into those numbers? Yeah, Paul, you know, I I did look up. I created sort of a, a group of teams in True Media, which uh, allowed me to just assess every team in the league kind of from an EPA standpoint against defenses that finished in the top half in EPA. And I thought that was a good enough group. You start limiting it any more than that. And you really have a small selection of games. And when you get Mm -hmm. to the middle of the pack and measuring like teams by EPA, sometimes a very small margin is separating them. So I think, you know, against the top half of the league, green Bay has a six and two record in those games, Mm. um, which you'd say is pretty good. Yeah. Yet, their own defense was really the driving force in five of those six wins. And when you really boil it down, they swept Chicago and Minnesota in those games and they beat Denver. So we can sort of make our own assessment of what those teams, you know, were offering from an either side of the ball standpoint. And that's really what I love about, you know, having time to write stories is that you don't just look at the Packers overall. You say, let's look at them against the top half of the league. And then when you do that, you don't just go with that they're six and two. You look at who it was against. Yeah. And then you don't just look at who it was against. You, then you look, break down the components and see, was it their offense or defense doing the job? Or, or was there some anomaly on special teams, right? So mm-hmm. that's what I just love about the process. And a lot of times, though, really great stuff that would get retweeted 2,000 times <laughs> never gets used because you see the folly in it if you look closely enough. Right. Yeah, say so it reminds me a lot about it's something here in soccer a lot more like in the Premier League where it's how did you do against those top six teams against those bottom 14 teams. It's not a split you think about as much in the NFL, maybe just because everyone's a little more compact. It's not as clear cut, but I think it's a pretty uh, useful way of looking at the information. Yeah, you, we're really trying to just weed out extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Or you know, or sometimes look at extremes. Sometimes right. sometimes you're measuring 32 teams and uh, it's like putting – 32 men in a, in a lineup and they're all between six foot two and six foot three. And one <laughs> yeah. of them ranks first and one of them ranks 32nd. But when you look at them from a hundred yards away, you can't tell them a different, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't tell the difference. So yeah. yeah, there's, you learn these skills, you know, as you do this and you're always on guard because you know, the rigor you put 
on someone else's work, you got to apply that to your own. So I want to lay some groundwork as we uh, move into discussing kind of the growth of football and of analytics over the last couple of decades. Tell me about your career path as you've covered the NFL from way back at Whitworth College in Spokane to uh-huh. where you are now at The Athletic. Okay, yeah, I graduated from high school in 1988 in down in Sacramento, California, and I I did go to college at Whitworth uh, in Spokane, you know, a couple states away, and started right away covering football uh, for the student paper. It's, it's hilarious looking back because the very first story I wrote was on Whitworth losing a game 66 to nothing or something to Central Washington, and I learned something funny about this business. I uh, filed my story. And then I woke up and realized that I didn't write the headline. And whoever wrote it wrote a really aggressive. It was like a guy from the basketball team was the editor. And he wrote a story about. <laughs> and so it said something like, you know, wildcats annihilate pirates. And the lead in was had a had the word annihilate with the Webster's dictionary thing. It really rubbed it in. I had like <laughs> threats on my dorm door. Here I am, an 18 year old. I could have gotten out of the business right there. I mean, seriously, like football players were, were all over me. So I learned there's a human side of this too. And yeah. I had a great experience there and actually was fortunate. I started working at the newspaper in Spokane, you know, the daily, the spokesman review there. Actually, when I was still in college, I started answering phones on Friday nights, taking high school box scores from 8 p.m. to midnight. The coach would call in from, you know, the the class A school and I would be answering and we'd take the box scores. And if you were lucky, they'd let you write one paragraph on the game. No byline. Right. Right. That's kind of how I got started. And, and it was wonderful. There were, you know, robust newsrooms, even at a midsized, smaller paper like that. We probably had mm-hmm. 25 people on staff or 20, you know. At a paper like that today, I don't know what they have, but there's some that don't exist and there's some that have two in the sports department. That's how things have changed. But I got to be doing an internship, you know, cut my teeth, writing a story about the gymnast Nadia Komenich when she came Mm. to town and misspelling her name throughout the whole thing. Right. And you're just learning the lessons, you know, the things that you just you cringe over. But I just had a great experience and and worked my way up to being a Pac-10 at the time. It was Pac-10. Uh, beat reporter covering Washington State. I covered Ryan Leaf when he was there. I got to cover the Rose Bowl. I transitioned from that to covering the Seahawks at the News Tribune in Tacoma when John Clayton was there. He went to ESPN in about 98. I, I went in there. Amazing. John had built that beat into something where they, you know, at a mid-sized paper, they're traveling to the Combine and the league meetings and the championship games and the Super Bowl for a whole week with multiple people. I started covering Super Bowls, and I've, I've been able to cover the last, whatever, 20, 21 Super Bowls. Um, I went from that to ESPN, you know, and was covering the NFC West, became a national columnist the last six months or so, went to The Athletic. I mean, it's really been a fairy tale ride that you couldn't reverse engineer, right? You, yeah. I couldn't. People say, well, what's the key? What did you do? And it's like we all sort of have our own path that we never, ever could have imagined. Going back to that day when I wrote about Whitworth being annihilated and had people mm-hmm. threatening me. You know, it's you have your own path, and uh, man, mine's been amazing. That's fun. I had a very similar experience working with a college paper <laughs> where I'd written something about the soccer team, and then I'm traveling with the soccer team all the time. And they're like, hey, what are you saying about us? I thought we were friends. And, but yeah, you, you figured those things out. So yes. the availability of football data has obviously changed a lot over the 20 years you've been covering the league. So what's the general evolution been like for you from what's been available to you over the last 20 years? Oh, this is great. It's a great question. So I've always liked to play around with data, but I'm largely self-taught. I don't have an economics background. I haven't been using right. 
stat programs, unfortunately. You know, we'll get into what I'd recommend p- people on mm-hmm. the up and coming in journalism school or whatever to do. But I can remember about 20 years ago, I was covering the Seahawks and they had acquired Matt Hasselbeck as their quarterback. Matt is a great guy, very smart, um, and really knows football. I mean, obviously he knows football, but even coming into the NFL, you know, his dad had played for the Patriots. He came right. up around the game. He was a quarterback, played for, I think he was even recruited maybe by, I don't know if it was Tom Coughlin or whatever. You know, he's been around, really knows the game. And so I asked him, I used to actually chart the play-by-play during the game in Microsoft Word, okay, wow. in like 2001. Yeah. You know, this is early on. And mm-hmm. I was putting down, I was trying to put down the personnel use from the formations um, so that after the game, I could just do a search and try to find Okay, mm-hmm. on this play, they were actually using three receiver personnel or something, right? Well, Matt really helped me like, no, no, no. What you want to look at is this. It's not really where we're lined up. It's who's on the field. It's who's in the huddle, right? So mm-hmm. even back then, especially 15 to 20 years ago, then I started using Excel. I was putting in the personnel groups. I learned that, hey, in Mike Holmgren's system, Zebra is 11 personnel. So if it was zebra personnel with Max Strong in the backfield, I would put a code in there, zebra 38. That was his number, okay? Mm -hmm. And I started charting all of their personnel groups myself for every game. And I I developed this sort of spreadsheet that actually another beat writer friend of mine still uses. And it just had formulas in there that would automatically update the yard line, the down, the distance. And so at the Mm -hmm. end of the year, the end of the game, I could look at all of their plays from Eagle personnel, which was their four wide receiver groups. So I was doing a lot of that myself. And then when I came to ESPN, I started covering the NFC West. I actually did that for all four teams every week. I would sit there and chart the personnel. I got very good at like recognizing, okay, uh, that you recognize body types, right? Okay. That's Mm -hmm. Anquan Bolden out there. You know, he's a bigger guy. I know it's not a tight end out wide. So I started really getting to the personnel and then at ESPN, I mean, they really started developing the analytics and stats and information group. And yep. a lot of that work then was done for me. And so, you know, they had True Media, which, uh, you know, basically the statistical interface, a great way to do the queries of all the data. Um, mm-hmm. And I was a kid in the candy store. Now I started to really learn um, I don't have to chart the game. It helps if you do it yourself. Of course, you get a greater familiarity. But so much time is saved and now I can sort of really dive in and have access to things that I never thought I could have access to in, in real time. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, that really was amazing for me. And then when ESPN developed total QBR, the total quarterback metric, which is, yep. you know, the, an expected points based system of dividing credit and trying to determine how much credit the quarterback should get, scaled zero to 100, 50 being average, and in general, all else being equal, if you're a 75 QBR, you're going to win 75% of the time, and so on. So I sort of became an evangelist for QBR at ESPN once I figured it out and realized it was a pretty darn good metric, you know? And Mm -hmm. so QBR and dealing with the guys uh, in the stats and information group at ESPN really enhanced my knowledge of what can be done, what's useful, you know, how to look at stuff. Obviously, EPA is a huge thing still. And uh, that set me on my current path, really, of using it. And then I got into, I got this job in about 2013, it's similar to the one I have now, where, where I'm now 
sort of an insider columnist where I'm talking to people in the league and getting their takes on things. Right. Well, now you start to fill out two sides of the information because the coaches know a ton more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the coaches know. I mean, it really bothers me on Twitter to see the smart people in analytics make fun of coaches because there's so many people in analytics who have no idea what they don't know. Right. Just okay. like there's people in the coaching side who don't know what they don't know. You know what right. I mean? Okay. But yeah. there's so much to be learned. You know, there's so much to be learned. And so what I've tried to do, I realize that I know 5% of what could be known in coaching and five, maybe 10% of what can be known in analytics. And so you have to really be careful in trying to manage these two things together. But it's really fascinating. I feel like I'm just learning all the time. And so much of it is learning what not to use, right? Because mm-hmm. there's so many stats out there that are fun and fun to use, but you have to know when and how to use them or else you're going to look really dumb to people who actually do know. Yeah, so you've kind of talked about one of the things that stands out to me about your writing, you know, having read you back to ESPN days, and that's kind of your approach to, or the fact that you use stats and analytics, I'd say more than your average writer, and that's changing, but you still incorporate those a lot. So what's your general approach to using data and combining that with the journalism side? Okay, for a while, I was so enamored with the data and the advanced metrics that I just wanted to explain it all to everybody and use it in my writing. And when I visited teams, I'd have these complex explanations of um, how it worked because I was so excited about how, for example, at ESPN, they had developed efficiency metrics that were basically EPA-based, but probably downweighted garbage time, scaled zero to 100, correlated somewhat to winning. Uh, But what you realize is to be a compelling uh, storyteller or to quickly make a point that resonates, you can't provide a Sloan analytics conference paper to people, right? They're not going to do it. I can't can't be on your radio show and people are going to tune out. So for me, I like to use the advanced metrics to basically verify whether the things that can be explained more in more simple terms, like by points or things that people actually understand, to verify, right? So yeah. like, I want to be able to use something that is really simple for a coach to understand, but to do that, you're really dealing in some basic currencies, which are, which are points, probably not yards, but points or things that can be understood, right? So you're using the advanced stuff to sort of check that a lot. Right. So um, as long as as long as the basic numbers are telling the same story as the what's called the analytics, you, you have less of a problem with using what is more easily understandable. If I had that, that was always one of the things that frustrated me. Like I got friends at football outsiders, but if I have to explain DVOA with two sentences every time, mm-hmm. we're losing people. So um, you can either talk to people who understand it. You don't have to explain it. But that's 10% of your audience if you're lucky, right? I mean, yeah. we're trying to resonate with everybody. And so even with EPA, you know, I'm, I'm using that in there. Like you, re- you referenced my Monday column in The Athletic, and I mm-hmm. have a sentence that says, Green Bay has gone 6-2 and two this season against teams that ranked in the NFL's top half in defensive EPA per game. Okay, well, we've established EPA. It's important. I mean, I think I feel okay using that, but I don't want to go too much farther to where I have to now explain too much something that you know what the rankings and offensive points per game are the, are the same except for two teams you know what i mean mm-hmm. so right. what, let's not outsmart ourselves here you know let's try to reduce it to something that uh that everyone understands and can be tested by things by some more advanced ways right yeah yeah it doesn't mean it's... the more advanced ways are right either all the time 
I find stuff all the time where I'm like, you know, I probably wouldn't use that. Special teams EPA is pretty cool, but it's a zero-sum game. The other team right. misses their field goals against you. Your EPA goes up. What did you do? Yep. You know what yeah, I, mean? there's, I, I was looking at a team's special teams EPA a, a couple weeks ago, and I was trying to figure out, you know, oh, why are they really good? And, and yeah, it just turned out that, you know, they, they'd had like one kickoff return, and then the, the other teams just happened to miss a bunch of field goals or, you know, had yeah. bad punts or whatever it was. And yeah. when you're doing a special teams where your number of plays is so much smaller, that sample size gets skewed a little more easily. Yeah, so the, the, like these are all things that through experience you learn, you know. And so for me, for going back 20 years to when I first asked Matt Hasselbeck how I should chart in Microsoft Word, okay, think how many stories, conversations I've had with people in the league. Think how many times I've found out I'm an idiot. Mm-hmm. A thousand times? <laughs> and I love it. We're all trying to figure that out. And I'm going to find out I'm an idiot five more times this year if I'm lucky. That's the process. And you get people that are willing to you know, say it nicely or at least explain their thoughts. And I think you're good at getting you know, coaches or, or management to, here's why I think this or why I disagree yeah. with you. Then that, I feel like there's tons of value there. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And I think there's, uh, you know, I think having a collaborative spirit with people and letting them know early on in your interactions with them that you don't think you have all the answers. Yeah. really is a great way for everybody to get to the common goal, which is to be right, right? To figure out, to get a little, to get a little bit smarter today. Yeah, it's very similar to when I was at ESPN working with you know, analysts and such on shows. At the beginning, especially, it's just kind of, let's listen to them, let's hear what they think, and then kind of go from there and, and then use the numbers to buttress what they're saying. Or, you know, once you get to know them, then it's like, well, then you can, can suggest that a little bit, maybe more strongly of, ah, this kind of seems to say the opposite of what you're thinking. But like you said, it's a dialogue, it's a back and forth and collaborative as you're all trying to kind of do the same thing ultimately. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So uh, some questions for about advice kind of for students or anyone really looking to enter the sports journalism industry. First, just from a media journalism perspective, uh, how would you tell a college student, for example, to prepare if he or she wants a career in sports media? All right, I'm going to take you back to... Mr. Al's 10th grade English class, Mike Sando, sophomore, uh, Mariloma High School down in, yeah. in uh, Sacramento. And we had to do an eye search project, okay? We had to research a profession. So at that time, I sent letters to, hmm. the, to the reporters and columnists at the two robust newspapers that were competing in Sacramento at the time. There were two papers in town, and they each had big staff. So the advice I got was good, which was... Get a four-year degree. That seemed to be that seems to help open some doors. So if you can get right, the degree, right. don't worry about majoring in journalism. You know, if you want to, fine. But major in something you're interested in, I I think that's true. Now, if I could go back, like so for me, I majored in like history, political studies. If that was interesting, but if I could go back, you know, would I maybe recommend you know maybe something that helped a little bit more with the understanding of data, maybe some economics, you know, statistical stuff could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, you probably get some of that nowadays if you were taking yeah. a, if you're a journalism major, that's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. I would imagine um, now you're right you everyone who's in that line of work has to have some fundamental understanding of how to do research in 2020. So you may right. get that, but I think I think those types of training, you know can help differentiate you in the field. If you're just somebody who knows how to construct cogent sentences, 
that has great value too, <laughs> but it'd be great to be able to do that and have some other specialty, right? Or some other thing that differentiates. So it could be something in the statistical realm that that type of stuff has interest to me, but it also could be something else. It could be um, maybe you have uh, a minor in athletic training or kinesiology, right? Or something mm-hmm. where then you can speak a language that um, other people can't. You know, mm-hmm. in the medical right. field, which is part of you know the things we're covering. So I look for other other you know ways to have a level of expertise that could differentiate you or help you. So that kind of goes into this question about I've had journalism students ask me. You probably have too. Like, should I take stats classes? Should I learn a programming language? Something on that analytics side. Uh, what would you kind of say? You touched on a little bit, but if what does a journalist need to know or know how to do with stats and analytics? Yeah, I would say yes to that. I, I would love it if I you know had. Uh, uh, SQL, you know, yeah. uh, expertise or something. I would love, I would love that. So I totally would recommend that. And if you're inclined to that naturally anyway, you know, so, heck I struggled in math coming up, you know, um, I really have to work at it if it's easier for you and it could really be worth your while, you know? So I want to go back kind of to how you've seen the team use of analytics change over the last couple of decades. Um, so I guess that's basically the question as you're talking to coaches, you're talking to general managers, whoever it might be, and how have you seen that evolve from how the teams are using data from when you started to where we are now? Well, I so when I was starting, you know, even the process of uh, film study, you know, film study is the ultimate, I guess, analytics, right? I mean, the, the mm-hmm. oldest, right? And so um, back in the day, you, you got to practice and there would be a large physical tower uh, on the side of right. the practice yeah. fields and there'd be a, you know, usually a man up there. Uh, with a camera on his shoulder or on a tripod, a big camera, and he would be back, you know, back far enough, he'd actually be shooting actual film, you know, actual film, you'd have to go get developed. (laughs) Uh Um, And then they would be physically cutting that film and splicing it together. And you only had um, a certain amount of film. So if you wanted the third and four play in your, or third and one play in your short yardage film, you had a hard time then putting it in your goal line film if it happened to be down near the goal line, right? So mm-hmm. that's where stuff was 30 years ago, and then, or maybe even more. More recently than having it in digital video, there was still some processing time to get it in the computers. And now there's not even a person up in the tower. They have an, just the cameras up there on a post, and there's a command center down in the field that's a mobile command center where they're um, probably doing the editing already. And so what that allows the teams to do is everybody at the same time immediately after practice sort all of the plays but even on the plane ride home from a game with a lot of different categories already marked and charted right so that everybody can quickly look at all the third and seven pluses against the blitz um over the last four games of a certain opponent and that's really i think helpful for the analysis that teams are doing. So you've got that from just a technology standpoint. Then you have teams increasingly having analytic staffs that are integrated into the operation in differing degrees and probably not nearly as much as as people would hope for. Um, I'm always sort of chuckle when, you know, invariably we'll we'll hear, hey, uh, these teams are really into analytics. And then the next sentence and the next thing is all talking about what they do on fourth down. 
Right. Well, that, that's the that's the easy kind of first thing to touch on from well, their in-day it, analytics standpoint. Guess what? If we went back and stood stood on the sideline next to Bud Grant when he was coaching the the Vikings in 1980, mm-hmm. he probably handled fourth down correctly 80% of the time, yeah. maybe 90, right? Okay. I mean, he, it's not like he was doing idiotic things. There'd be some things he'd do differently. Yeah. So isn't that interesting that like a huge percent of the conversation is still about that? It's easy. It's also easy to quantify, I think, with EPA or whatever metric you want. It's easy to just throw out a number. Well, you know, the win percentage changed by this or the points changed by this. But So, yeah, it's definitely it's an easy thing to grasp. You mentioned how they did it back in the day. That's probably something, you know, you're probably the same way. I've probably been yelling that at my TV for you know, 20 years before I even knew about any football analytics. Like, it's fourth and one. It's a yard. Go for it. So it's kind right, of, so but, it's, but, it's an well, easy well, thing but, for anybody to grasp. Right. But it's an easy thing to grasp. But what you don't know is, okay, let, let's go to a fourth. Let's say, let's talk about Jason Garrett. Okay. Mm-hmm. Jason Garrett, frustrating sometimes. It's fourth and one. Okay. The model says he's leaving uh, eight percentage points of win probability on the table by punting. Okay. Here's my questions for you. What fourth and one plays does he have in the game plan this week? How many of them? How many have they used? Yep. How do they how do they look against um, who's in it, out of the game? Their guard just limped off with the ankle injury, right? Uh, they have a different center in there. Um, the other team had this guy who was questionable, but he's playing and playing really well on defense. So what do you say? What's your analysis? Go ahead. Give me your analysis on all those things. Yeah. Bill O'Brien said that after he said one of the reasons they didn't go for it on that fourth and one when they kicked the field goal against the Chiefs last weekend because he didn't have the right play, which on one hand kind of, seems a little ridiculous like they should but on the other hand it's a real thing and when you've got to make the decisions that fast it can be a big factor in there how many plays do you have up for a game in a given week how many for each situation yeah i feel like there should be more but but yeah i have no idea because i guarantee you jason garrett knows Mm -hmm. all the people that are making fun of him on twitter they don't know right right but they're really really sure of themselves right absolutely that's what twitter's for do you think that's annoying for coaches I kind of think so. I mean, I can say just from my perspective, I, I worked in at ESPN for 10 years and I would see things on Twitter where people act like, well, why didn't the TV broadcast do this? And, well, you know, they don't know about the whatever turnaround time to get in a highlight or the fact that you have to get the sponsorship in or whatever it is. And yeah. so, yeah, there's that's what you're saying. There's always multiple layers and sides to things that it's hard to grasp. From yeah. The at the same time, they do make mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yep. they really do. Uh, but there's they have a much fuller body of information that could totally override three percentage points of win probability in a model that may not even that may have five percent error anyway yeah Yeah. and that's important i think from the stat angle and it's something we try to stress you know it's true to develop some metrics that are used by teams and such and we always sell them like this is a you know it's a starting point or a suggestion because you obviously know if it's baseball you know you're pitching this guy a certain way which changes things or it's football you know yeah that injury or you know, your left tackle is really struggling today or whatever it might be. There's always more. And that's why you have to have the human element. I think John Harbaugh said that this year. Like He gets the, you know, go for it or whatever in his ear. And then he layers on what yeah. he knows from how this game is playing and, and what everyone's doing out there. Yep. So I but I do think, you know, teams increasingly do have analytics departments. So that's, you know, that's good. And then, you know, within that, there's varying degrees of trust between those people and the people, the coaches and and that, Mm -hmm. and that's just the same as it would be for anyone else in a building. 
the head coach may not really think the running back coach is that good, so he's not putting as much into him. He may love the receiver coach, so he may he may take his input more. And so those things, I think, as time goes by, the trust will, you know levels between the analytics people who tend to skew younger and tend to skew from a more academic realm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. As they just sort of become, you know, sort of learn the ropes inside of an organization. And then I think one of the problems right now is we're flush with all of this data, but not 100% sure how to use it. The tracking data yes. is great. Yes. And so like my old colleague at Brian Burke does some really cool stuff with it. But for every one of those, I'm not talking about Brian's work, but for every one of the things that people can come up with, there's three layers of yeah, buts internally, mm-hmm. and this stuff still has to be vetted against the film. Yeah. You know, you can you can be like, hey, Ryan Tannehill's completion percentage over expectation was so good. Oh, God, I'm so excited. Right. Coming to do a big story number. Well, you and I both know Ryan Tannehill's not great. Do you think he's as good as Dan Marino? I'm I'm a Dolphins fan, and I can definitively say no. Yeah. yeah. So he's probably not right. So. What are the things that I'm not picking on CPOE? You know, I thought that was like a disease, but, um, (laughs) you know, I'm not picking on it because I'm as interested as anybody. I want to look at it. You know, it's one thing, but I'm not doing a story off of it. Um, I'm aware of it. I like it. But um, do you think the how consistently the receivers make a good or bad or a catch that's I'm not saying avoid drops. I'm saying, do you think where the receivers are, the trust of them? Uh, the spacing, the stuff in the offense, all affects whether a certain quarterback has a good one of those. Uh, you know, I, I probably think it does. Yeah. Um, so those are all examples of things. You know, there's player models that analytics directors have that help in the draft process. Uh, they're one component of it. You wouldn't just use only that, mm-hmm. but I think there'd be great value in there to say, here's three things to consider. You know, can we can we we're interested in these five players at wide receiver. Okay. Analytics guy, what's your turn in the room? And so like, if you pay attention to like um, what different teams are doing, like there's been some stuff in the media about the Colts and how their front office has enabled uh, George Lee is that I think their analytics yep. director, uh, John Park, right. Is yep. there. Yeah. Yeah, we work uh, with those, them. yeah. Those guys, um, those guys actually have a real voice in the room, according to the things that I've, um, you know, read, from I think Zach Kiefer is, is our is our beat reporter, you know, doing the Colts, and so that's pretty cool. They're encouraged to like actually speak up, actually challenge, right? In another building, that guy may speak up and say something, and people might roll their eyes. I don't know, but I think mm-hmm. over time, these two um, you know groups will become more and more integrated. And you'll have you'll have younger GMs coming in, you know, who uh, maybe are more open. Um, to integrating the processes. And then I think the processes will just continue to improve. Like I said, right now, there's all this data, but there's not like a definitive way to to just use it to get the huge competitive advantage that everybody wants. So you mentioned the NGS data. What have you seen teams doing with it? Or what do you think they will do as this NGS data uh, continues to evolve? It's been around three, four years. What do you, where do you see that going? Yeah, well, I would definitely think that, um, you know, helping with uh, formations and and recognition of plays. Uh, like I said, Brian Burke's done some great stuff with like, is it man, is it zone? Mm-hmm. You know, just being able to process larger amounts of information. I think as you get more years of it, those reference points are just critical to like, okay, yeah. we know our offense wasn't good in 2017. How does this compare now? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, th- those types of things. So now the ball is involved, right? I mean, there's tracking with the ball, I believe, has just, has that just started this year? It's a couple Three, years. A couple years. So um, I think 
I think you definitely will see teams using it. I've also, you know, you, you also wonder, is there, a, you know, I, I think in, broadly in analytics, like how it can apply to injury prevention is like a holy grail, you know? So yeah. I don't know if GPS is going to be hugely helpful on that. Uh, can GPS become more accurate? You know, what is it, how accurate is it now? Is it down to a yard? Yeah. Is it down to six inches? I mean, I think as it gets, as these things tighten up, you know, maybe um, that can be used now, but but used in the future. But right now, I feel like it's just a huge mass of data where we're happy to have it, but not exactly sure if it's going to help the 49ers beat the um, Packers this week. Right. To shift gears a little bit, you are one of, I think, 48 people on the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee. And I know you can't get into nitty-gritty details about uh, how a candidate yeah. is discussed and whatnot. But what can you tell us about, especially from a number standpoint, how are the stats and numbers used in Hall of Fame uh, cases, whether it's for or against, you know, your kind of typical narratives and, and testimonials and whatnot? Okay, so I am the selector for the Seattle area. So when we get into the meeting room the day before the Super Bowl, those It'll be all those people that you talked about on the selection committee. And uh, because I represent Seattle, I will be giving the presentation for Steve Hutchinson. Okay. Okay. It's uh-huh. a guard who played for yep. Seattle and Minnesota. And I have, when, I, when it's my turn to speak in this room, there's going to be 15 finalists in there. We're going to pick five. So right now there's 3,000 unique combinations of five that we can have, by the way. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I get five minutes. I start talking. There's a clock on the wall with five minutes. So do you think I'm going to get into advanced stats that I have to explain? And I'm going to have right. guys with crinkled eyebrows and you know, cr- uh, throughout the whole process? No, right. no. I'm getting one shot. And mm-hmm. so um, the stats that are going to be used in that are going to be things like if it's a pass rusher, uh, is there some context to add to his sack numbers? You know, okay, yes, he was uh, number of three in sacks during the years when he played. Um, and, but we should also, we also need to know that he spent four of those years in a scheme where he was head up on the tackle. So um, he didn't have those, you know, opportunities to shoot the gaps and really get as many. Mm-hmm. Um, so you may be able to do something like that. Uh, for me, when, uh, when uh, Morton Anderson was up as a kicker, I did a study where I took all the kickers for, that era, you know, it was Gary Anderson, all these guys, and I eliminated all the 95% make kicks, right? I mean, right. we don't Everything care. Yeah. Inside just, 30 or whatever it is. And so yeah. I did this thing. I was like, hey, if we're putting, you know, Morton Anderson in the Hall of Fame, the real value he was adding was as one of the first guys to really be trusted to kick from 50 plus yards, you know? So that was the real value. And I used just sort of my grounding in numbers where we would all eliminate the it's like if we're measuring putting, we're eliminating all the gimmies, right? Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can make as many one-foot putts as Tiger Woods, right? Right. Yep. I mean, just about the same. In the kicking case, I thought that was a pretty cool thing mm-hmm. um, to do. But I think he would have got in anyway. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't necessarily see ad- use of advanced stats and analytics uh-huh. tipping the scales in that room. So maybe someday, but we're not there yet for all these non-skill position guys we're not there yet but i wonder if we could get there eventually just to decide who gets in the room once you get in the room we're doing the thing where we're ma- ranking all the guys by height and they're all between six three and six four right <laughs> once you've made it into yeah. that you're all there's no one in that room who just like wasn't any good for the most you know what i mean yeah, yeah you're picking the most attractive supermodel or whatever yeah. yeah absolutely we're gonna have frank gore in that room in a couple of years and he's gonna be in the top three in rushing all time and we can debate whether rushing has value or you know, we can all talk about, you know, sacks are overrated. Yeah, 
every great passer rusher has a lot of them if he plays for 10 years, right? So, yeah. um, you know, the level of nuance in it, I think we're more persuaded in that room by um, some of the testimonials and stuff. You know, um, it's funny. Eyewitness accounts are least reliable in convicting a uh, <laughs> identifying a, cr- a crime. Right. Yeah. There's many right. people have very sadly gone to jail for a long time over an eyewitness. But in football, I think eyewitness, you know, when you get a coach who's really studied a guy and he can differentiate between two linemen, I think that is helpful. The process is so, so different than baseball, which is obviously almost exclusively stats. And so I'm always interested by just the general uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame process because we don't hear the numbers. We don't know exactly how it went down. It's a much more private affair, which is fine. It's just very different from you know, hey, yeah. Tell me, especially. tell me what you think about this. So, like, one of the, like we're we're really into inflation in the passing game, and so mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of receivers with a lot of catches, right? Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. So and, and quarterbacks. I you know? at, yeah, I kind of look at where is a guy in some of these, you know, non-advanced metrics at the time of retirement. Right. Isn't that sort of I think so. Yeah. Or, you know, you pick his era, you know, if yeah. it's the last 25 years or, or the 10 or yeah. 12 years that he played. Yeah. yeah. That's going to be really interesting to me because we've already started having these conversations about your Philip Rivers, and your Eli Mannings, whose numbers are in your top, you know, five and 10 all time. Oh, but of course, they're throwing the ball three or four times as many times as Joe Namath or Bob Greasy did back in the day. It's, it's and, not an easy task. And they're throwing in an era when it's much harder to intercept the ball. You yep. look at Joe Namath's numbers and you'd think he was yeah. horrible. Yeah. You know, sure. but I'm telling you, he wasn't horrible, you know? <laughs> yep. No, I remember, um, so, yeah. so like I said, I was raised a Dolphins fan. So my dad obviously kind of raised me on the lore of the 72, 73 Dolphins and stuff. And I remember I knew Bob Grease is all a famer. He's great. And then I remember at some point, I was a teenager probably looking at his numbers and I was like, wait, he threw the ball like seven times in a Super Bowl. And you know, yes, the game the Ryan Tannehill had very the other day was, was Bob Grease's career Absolutely. in the 70s. You know? It was. Yeah. And so. Eli versus Rivers is a classic one. I feel like Rivers is a better quarterback, but Eli won two championships and right. played a big role in those. You know, it's a, it's a lot. To, there's there's no. That's what's so frustrating when it's announced mm-hmm. and you go, "How did this guy not make it?" And I always say, "Well, who are you taking out?" Oh yeah, right. good point. That guy was pretty good too, oh. but but there's not a standard. It's tough. I don't envy trying to get 48 people to. It's to hard. I always feel ter- I always feel great for those five guys who make it and horrible for the guys who miss. I feel horrible for them. I mean, they're invested in it and you don't have a good explanation for why I didn't make it. Right. Because they could easily make it. They might make it next year. You just don't know. Yes. All right. I want to wrap things up by our, with our playing favorite segment. We call it just running through some of the favorite things for you. So tell me what your favorite number is and why. 33 was probably, you know, a favorite number okay. for me. Freeman yeah. Dredgeable my favorite player growing up sure and, there you go uh, that dates me but so that, that kind of answers the favorite athlete question i think i was gonna well no i have another one you have another one another favorite athlete that we'll, we'll say football who's your favorite football player growing up wow such a great question i should have just one i gave you i gave you my my nba was kareem Abdul jabbar my boxer was muhammad ali by far by far I really liked steve wisniewski the left guard of the raiders okay now he didn't start playing until i was I was an adult, probably. I guess it started playing in 89. But he played with a tenacity that just stood out to me. He was always one of those guys like you watched out for around the pile yeah. and was just aggressive. And if you go watch, there's a playoff game they played, I believe, in 94 against the Raiders. And Jeff Hostetler's a quarterback, kind of a hard-nosed dude. Mm-hmm. Hostetler's run out of bounds, and the, the defensive player for Denver just kind of clips the back of his legs as he's going out. Well, Hostetler goes nuts, okay? He goes, <laughs> he's going to go fight. You think Mason Rudolph's crazy for fighting, you know, going to fight in the game. He goes after the defensive player, and they're nose-to-nose. Well, 
Wisniewski comes running from 20 yards away and just takes the guy out at the shoulders. I mean, he'd be suspended for like a year now. There's not even a flag. They don't flag Wisniewski for the play, but he just had this enforcer mentality. And I guess he's a really great dude who's mild-mannered and not like that, but I kind of like the enforcer. So you've covered 20-plus Super Bowls. Do you have a favorite Super Bowl moment you've experienced? It could be in-game, maybe something behind the scenes. Favorite Super Bowl moment? Favorite Super Bowl moment? It might have been the first one I covered. It was Mm -hmm. the John Elway Super Bowl win in the Eugene Robinson game. Remember that? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that game. So I was a young, well, I was late 20s, but beat reporter for for the Tacoma News Tribune. And we would work all week. Me and my partner at the News Tribune, Dave Bowling, we worked all week. And then on Saturday, the day before the Super Bowl, especially back then, it was a little bit of a pre-internet internet age. Um, that was your day to go like take in the sights. So we decided we're going to drive to Key West. The game was in Miami or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're going to drive to Key West and we're going to just spend the day in Key West. So we rented these scooters, like these, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to ride around Key yeah. West. So me and Dave riding around. And there's other people renting scooters riding around, too. Well, I stop at like a stop sign or stoplight. And this other dude pulls up next to me on this on his scooter. And I look over. It's Hulk Hogan. <laughs> I thought it was like the coolest <laughs> thing ever. I'm like sitting next to Hulk Hogan. And this is, I don't know if he, you know, it's a soup, maybe he lives there or whatever. It's sort of yeah, a Super so. Bowl time too. I just thought that was one of the coolest things uh, <laughs> for somebody who sort of grew up in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. I actually saw Hulk Hogan wrestle once, you know, as a kid. Wrestled Big John Stud at the Memorial Auditorium in Sacramento. <laughs> you know, I grew up trying to convince my dad wrestling was real, you know. So uh, right. to be on mopeds, you know, these little scooters sitting next to Hulk Hogan, that's my Super Bowl moment. That's pretty great. Do you have a favorite game you've attended as a fan? So throwing out, you know, the Super Bowls and, and professional experiences, favorite game that you've been to in the stands? Um, I was a Raiders season ticket holder before I was covering, and they were horrible mm-hmm. both the years. Mm-hmm. Um so I'll tell you the favorite sports game, because I don't really have one for NFL. Um, mm-hmm. Favorite sports game. So when I was in high school, Michael Jordan was fairly new playing in the NBA, and he was the the man, of course, right? I yeah. mean, so we actually, I can't believe it, I was probably 17. My mom let me and my friends camp out overnight in the parking lot at the arena to get tickets. <laughs> I don't think I would let my kids do that. Yeah, uh, yeah. We're out now. there with like throwing footballs around and the ticket, I still have the ticket. It was probably like six or eight bucks for a back row ticket at the old Arco arena. And we got to go watch the game. I think Jordan had like 45 points. I mean, it totally didn't disappoint at all. Um, and so being able to see him play, I was fortunate to be able to see the Lakers with Kareem magic play are, you know, lifelong memories for me. Nice. Do you have a favorite NFL city that you get to visit? So you, you see this game on the schedule, like, great, I get to go to here. Um, yes. It used to be San Diego when the Chargers were there. I love to go to San right. Diego, just yeah. for obvious reasons. It's just a yep. wonderful place. Yeah. Um, I do like it when the games are in New Orleans. Um, mm-hmm. I just like, you know, I like to go uh, eat there, sample the food. I like Chicago. Uh, now, I yep. don't love the stadium even though it's historic soldier field from a press box standpoint, mm-hmm. I don't love it, but I do love Chicago and miracle mile and, and yeah. you know, museums and stuff, which I d- usually don't do. I don't do that when I'm like at a game, uh, right. you know, when I'm working a game, but I, but I do love there. the city. Yeah, yeah. I do love the city. Yeah. I went to college outside Chicago and didn't get there enough, but great town. 
And finally, do you have a favorite kind of how did I get here moment in the sense that, yeah. uh, you, you know, when you're usually young and you kind of realize, wow, I've not made it, but this is a pretty <laughs> cool place I'm at now. Well, I'll, the way you phrased it first made me think of a yeah. here. Here's a moment. So yeah. I, I'm in high school. I take uh, I take the newspaper class for a year. Mr. Frizzy is our is our newspaper advisor. And I he could probably tell that this was going to be a line of work for me. Right. But sophomore year, my buddies decided not to take newspaper class. It wasn't cool. So I, I, being an idiot, I didn't take it. I just didn't sign up for it. I signed up for whatever elective I wanted to be in with my friends. So I'm sitting in uh, history class, and here comes Mr. Frizzy. He comes into the class. He literally grabs me by the collar. This would probably not be allowed now. He grabs <laughs> me by the collar, and he drags me down to the register's office, and he changes my schedule. Uh-oh. I don't even have a choice. He changes my schedule that I'm in newspaper class. And I don't know what would have happened if he didn't do that. But for the next three years, I was in newspaper class hmm. and I was a sports editor for the high school paper. And maybe that's why I went and did the high school paper in, or the college paper. Right. Right. And yeah. then maybe that's why the news editor at the at the college paper, Greg Orwig, told me the, the number of the sports editor at the Spokane paper. Mm-hmm. And then he told me about the internship they had. And then I worked with Dave Bowling on the staff there. And then Dave left to work at the paper in Tacoma. And when Tacoma, when John Clayton left, and I had no idea, Dave was working there. And Dave called me and said, you ought to apply to be the CX Beat Reporter. And then I worked at the CX, I'm a CX Beat Reporter. And the head of the interactive department, the website, says, hey, Mike, after five years, do you want to do a blog? These things are new. I said, yeah, I'll do a blog. <laughs> I do a blog sure. for two years and win a blogging award. The two guys from ESPN, Patrick Sigmund and John Banks, are looking uh, to start yeah. that realm. And they look at, well, who's won a blog award? It's me. Right. They say, do you want to do it? Great. I go work at ESPN. I do that for a few years. They're going to expand the network from divisions to 32 teams. Dan Kaufman's head of ESPN Insider. He says, hey, Mike, do you want to be an NFL Insider columnist? Yeah, great. <laughs> I do that for five years. I develop quarterback tiers, all the things that I'm known for now. Yep. Dan leaves and goes to The Athletic. They're looking for somebody. You see how all this works? Yeah. Right place, right time, sliding doors. Do your good Mr. Do your Mr. Job Frizzy, well. Mr. Frizzy comes into Mr. Paulo's history class in 1986 and me by the collar and does something that changes my entire life, right? Yeah, that's fun. It's fun to think Pretty about cool. the little things that, that set us yeah. on the path to get where we are today. Yep, so that's that's the path. All right. So Mike Sando, senior NFL writer for The Athletic. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thank you. Back in the True Media studios, I'm Paul Carr, joined by True Media's Albert Larcata. Thanks again to The Athletic's Mike Sando for joining us here on Expected Value. I think you had a lot of good stuff to say about how numbers are used in journalism and football. Uh, Albert, what did you take away from the conversation? Yeah, there was a question in there where you hinted at him being a little more data-driven uh, writer than others, which I think is true. Uh, he's mm-hmm. been doing this for a decade now, trying to integrate uh, data and analytics into his pieces. But I think his his story about when he first kind of caught the bug and wanted to use data and analytics in his writing more, he loved it so much, but I think he it, his words were something like he underestimated how almost non-compelling it would be to like 80 or 90% of the audience, just mm-hmm. if you start trying to explain DBOA or any other metric out there. 
uh, he just lost engagement from people, both with his writing and when he was trying to talk to teams about some of the stuff he was doing. In my experience, I'm sure it's in your experience too, in media, that's very similar. You can't talk to a producer like that. You can't talk to a talent like that. So I, I think across the sports analytics realm, that's a pretty common trap a lot of writers, analysts, whoever fall into. Um, related, he mentioned this sort of next evolution was putting things into basic currency, I think was the word he used. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I mentioned our former colleague, Dean Oliver, a lot here, but from working with him over eight plus years at ESPN and then here at True Media, he would always say that. In, in any initial conversation he would have with anyone non-technical, be it a producer at an ESPN show, a scout, a coach when he was working for teams, whoever, he would never verbatim bring up any of the numbers he had to run to validate whatever point he was trying to make. He would always, quote unquote, speak their language knowing that whatever he's saying is backed up by this analysis he did offline, uh, but not necessarily even having to reference that analysis in the conversation. Sando's story reminded me of that, and it's again, I think it's pretty common. Yeah, it's something I encountered at ESPN when you're, you're kind of doing similar things to what Sando is doing. I kind of always tried to come back to having a point to using the numbers, if it, especially if it's an advanced thing. You know, Use it to back something up or do something that you couldn't say another way. If I'm building a graphic or something, don't throw it on the graphic just for the sake of putting it up there. Uh, make sure it tells a story. You know, when I build soccer graphics, just simple like post-game graphics, sometimes shots, shots on goal, XG, all would tell the same story. And in that case, you know, sometimes it would hurt me inside, but sometimes it'd be better to leave XG off the graphic. Uh, but when there's a case where you know Team A outshoots Team B, but Team B got the better shots and has a higher XG, that's when you want to get it on the graphic because it tells a story of oh, you know, Arsenal may have only had two shots, but they're both you know top of the six and could easily have been goals, so they didn't get uh, destroyed as much as you might have thought they did. Something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Right. And one one other thing, sort of unrelated, mentioned about analytics, uh, something along the lines of being a shortcut for coaches. Right. I, I totally agree with that too. It's almost like the uh, analytics as a service model where though less appreciated, I think it adds a lot more value to where teams are today yeah. uh, as opposed to you know using analytics to uncover some undervalued player or some unnoticed trend in an opponent if you're trying to advance scout them. Those things I think are out there and mm -hmm. could be found using data, but right purely using the, the data and analytics to make you more efficient, to save you time, uh, sort of like the process-oriented uh, things that you can do with analytics, I think today where we sit adds more value than, than the alternative. Yeah, I think especially in football, I think in soccer it's true. I think it was Laurie Schott back at Nessus had a presentation basically about identifying runs and movement, almost plays, so to speak, in soccer. And his point and I think someone else made this at Nessus in a different sport, was like, look, yeah, you could have your coaching staff sit down and watch these games. You could produce this, a very similar thing ultimately. This is just more comprehensive because it can cover you know, all the players instead of focusing on the left wing or whatever. And it's faster. So you can you know, make this automated. You get it done in whatever, no time basically for your coaching staff or five minutes or something. And they have those three or four hours to do something else and go deeper and better. So it's a, yeah, it's a time saver. We see it on the baseball side too. You know, we have uh, advanced scouting reports that we produce for teams. They could obviously do these themselves and watch the video and do it. But when you rather have five minutes and then have those three hours to dive deeper or figure out whatever the next step is for your team, I think so. And yeah, you're right. That's what the analytics from a big picture is useful for right now. 
All right. Thanks, Albert. That'll wrap things up for episode 15. Thanks again to Mike Sando for joining us on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at SandoNFL and read his work at The Athletic. You can follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports, T-R-U Media Sports, and me at Paul Carr. Please keep subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show wherever you get the podcast and spreading the word as much as possible. We'll be talking more football the next couple weeks as we approach the Super Bowl and then dive back into additional sports after that. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Yeah.